pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can gather together. I pray now, Lord, would you remove distractions from our minds and our hearts. Pray that we would understand, that we would grasp more and more the grace that you hold out for us, especially through this passage that we look at this morning. Would we truly understand how great the Master is? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, if you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the ninth hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour... He went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only at one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Matthew here gives us this parable of Jesus. But before we dive into this, it would be good for us to step back and ask, why did Jesus speak in parables? A few reasons. One is that parables would be very memorable. They were memorable stories. And the disciples, and Peter in particular, there will come a time where he will desperately need to remember the message of this parable. But also another reason Jesus spoke in parables is that it called forth an immediate response from the listener. It called forth for those around to examine themselves. And I'll share a parable once that did this exact thing for me to illustrate the nature of parables. I shared this a couple of years ago when I preached, but I think, again, it illustrates the point behind what parables do. It was my high school freshman science class. The teacher was Coach Schweitzer. He was a tough guy. There are some teachers that you just know that you can mess with. Coach Schweitzer was not one of those teachers. And I remember it was in the middle of one of his lectures that he said something that just triggered in my mind a witty comment. And the next thing you know, it went exactly from my mind and it traveled out through my mouth, just out there in front of the class. I thought it was pretty witty. He didn't think so. Neither did anybody around me. Because nobody laughed, and you could have heard a pin drop. 
And I still remember to this day his exact words along with his hand gestures. He paused. Donahoe, I once had a dog that barked when I didn't want it to, and I shot it. How does that apply to your life? <laughs> That's what the class did. They laughed at me, and I, at that point, understood the parable, so I shut my yapper. That's what it does. It causes us to examine ourselves. And this is and the parable that Jesus is telling here. He challenges his disciples, although it's not funny. He challenges his disciples to, to challenge their assumptions of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, to challenge their assumptions that prestige and status and doing the right things do not earn necessarily brownie points with God. And for us to understand why Jesus tells this particular parable, we just have to look at the context that came right before it. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19 approached Jesus right before this parable, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, the great physician, cuts right through his sternum and goes right for the heart. He says, you must give up and turn away from that which you love, namely your possessions. But instead, the rich young ruler turned away from Jesus because he loved his wealth too much. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been absolutely shocking to the disciples because in that day, they would have understood wealth to be a blessing in a person's life. But Jesus completely turns that upside down. And even Peter's response, Peter replies, well, look at us, Jesus. See, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? It's a fair question, isn't it? But Jesus' reply is anything but fair. Jesus goes on to say, Peter, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he tells this parable, which definitely does not seem fair to our ears, nor the disciples' ears at that time. And Jesus ends the parable in verse 16 with, so the first will be last, and the last will be first. This is far from fair. Just If we think about the parable just for a second, essentially we have a master that goes out to hire workers for his vineyard. And he goes out at 6 in the morning. And then again, the scriptures tell us he went out again the ninth hour, again the sixth hour, and he continues on throughout the day. We can translate that as, the master went out, he hired at 6, he went out again at 9. He went out again at 12 and hired more. He went out still again at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And finally, the scriptures say he went out the 11th hour. We would translate, understand that as, he went out at 5 o'clock in the evening to hire still more. And yet pay time would come at 6 o'clock. And at that point, he paid everybody a denarius, which was a day's wage. He paid everybody the same. That it seems to us to be anything but fair. And that's what Jesus wanted the disciples to feel. He wanted them to feel that this isn't fair. And he wants us to feel that it's not, unf that it's not fair because he wants to disrupt our idea of what fairness is all about. He wants to disrupt our idea that we get what we deserve, that we get what we earn. But we're pretty removed from this particular parable. 
Obviously, most of us, I don't know of any in here that actually work vineyards. And so uh, we may not feel this very deeply. And so let me change this parable around a bit to help us understand. There are five men that go to get season basketball tickets in their beloved college town. Now, the first guy is in his 70s. And he graduated from that particular university in that town and has been faithful to his team throughout the years that he's been living in that town. Uh, Faithful thick and thin to the school, to the athletic program, and more importantly, he's paid thousands upon thousands of dollars into a particular university fund that allows him to get good seats. (laughs) Because the more you pay in, the better your seats are. Well, then the second, third, and the fourth people, each one, uh, similar stories, but they've all paid a little bit less into their fund. So they don't have, they have not accrued as many points. But then the fifth person, he's a little different. He is from, he just moved to that town from a rival college town. And he only wants tickets to be able to watch one game a year, his beloved team, when they come to town. And so they all gather at the field house, and they're all talking, and they all recognize from each other's stories how many points each one has accrued. So the master of the field house calls them forth. It's time for the seating assignments. And he calls the last one first. The fifth man comes in, and he gets his seat assignments. And it is five rows up, half court on the player's side. So obviously, at this point, the first man is extremely excited, thinking he's going to be sitting right next to the coach, helping him call plays. But as it turns out, the master of the field house was feeling very generous to those that did not have as many points. And so he sat all of them together on the exact same row. Now let me ask you a counseling question. If you're that first man, how do you feel about that? I tell you how you feel. You feel like hurting someone. If you have paid all that money in, you would be thinking, I've earned more. This is not fair. Plus, I'm sitting right next to this chump from the rival school. (laughs) This is anything but fair. And that, again, is what we are to feel, is that this reveals to us, our idea of fairness reveals to us the condition of our very hearts. Because we are so used to operating off of merit, that you get what you deserve. And even Peter, in this parable, the question that he asks, when he says, see, we've left everything and followed you, you get to feel that Peter is operating off of merit as well, of the great things that he has done in following Jesus. And he's counting up his merit points. But for Peter and for the rest of us, the last thing we should want from the master is fairness. Instead of fairness, what we should desire is the generosity that comes out of the heart of the master. This parable helps us to see that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It is an upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. And we must understand the master and what he values. It'll be helpful for us to understand this parable through the eyes of the characters involved. The first character we have is the master. And there's a few surprises about this master. One is that he actually not just cares about his vineyard, but he really cares about the laborers. 
In fact, we see this because throughout this passage, he continually goes out to seek those who are needy. In the passage, in the ESV, it says those who are idle all day. If you have the NIV, it says those who are doing nothing. That is the heart of the master. He's clearly gracious, he's good, and he's generous. In his book, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges, and this is the same Jerry Bridges that comes here and does a conference uh, in every February. Um, in his book, he covers this parable and he articulates the heart of the master very well. So I want to read just a portion of this. In the labor culture of that day, the workers needed the money to buy food for their families. They lived a day-to-day existence. That is why landowners were instructed to pay a hired man his wages each day before sunset, because he is poor and counting on it. That's the scripture he quotes from Deuteronomy 24:15. The landowner was not only fair with his workers, he was progressively more generous with each group of workers he hired throughout the day. Each worker regardless of how long he had worked, to receive a day's wage. He received not what he had earned on an hourly basis, but what he needed to sustain his family for a day. The landowner could have paid them only what they had earned, but he chose to pay according to their need, not according to their work. He paid according to grace, not debt. The parable focuses particularly on the workers who were hired at the 11th hour. They had been standing all day waiting for someone to hire them so that they could earn money to support their families. They needed to work more than the landowner needed the work. He hired them not because of his need, but because of their need. He represents God in his gracious awareness of our needs and his continuous work to meet them. God calls us to serve him not because he needs us, but because we need him. The master paid according to grace, not debt. And this is consistent with the nature of God that we see throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, we have a foundational definition of God that he gives us. It's a foundational description. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Really, that's the heart of this parable. That's what this parable is all about, that there's a master who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to those who do not deserve it. That's the master. But then we have other characters in this story. And we have characters that fall into two extremes. There are the all-day laborers that worked a 12-hour day, but there are also the 11th hour workers, ones that worked one hour, we would call them slackers. They get paid first. So let's begin with them. Verses 6 through 9. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. If you notice here, the master is continually seeking, and he seeks up until the eleventh hour. But but notice that the master did not 
go out and find those who were pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. He did not go out and help those who helped themselves. No, he goes out and he helps those who had a desperate need for his generosity. He was gracious to those who were standing idle, who were doing nothing. So this should cause us to ask, spiritually, who does this represent? Who might feel like the 11th hour workers, standing idle and doing nothing? It could be that if someone has come to faith later in life, that they feel like the 11th hour worker. They look back on their life and say, oh, if only I had known, I would have raised my children different. I would have treated others in a different manner, conducted my business different. I would not live with the regrets of the moral decisions that I made earlier in life. That might be one who feels like the 11th hour worker. Another one could be Christians who at this stage, they've been Christians maybe for a while, but at this point they feel hopeless because of the discouragement of life, because of potentially entanglements with sin, those that have stumbled in their walk with the Lord. Could be that even in church on this Sunday, we dress up, we look all right, but deep down inside, you could feel like your life is a complete mess. And that spiritually speaking, you are doing nothing and you feel completely idle in the kingdom of God. For some, it may be that they have not actually embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior, and therefore, they're standing idle, doing nothing, because they have not entered into the kingdom. And what we need to understand, if we feel like the 11th hour laborer, is that with this master, it is not too late. This master seeks throughout the day, even up until the 11th hour. And do you know how he treats the 11th hour worker? He treats the 11th hour worker with great, amazing grace. And we, pick, we get this pictured in another parable. It's the parable, parable of the prodigal son. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15... Luke chapter 15, this story may be fairly familiar to most. There is a father that has two sons. The younger son decides in a very disrespectful way to take the inheritance and to leave the family. And so he does that. He goes on and he squanders his wealth in loose living. But then he realizes that he has been a fool. And so he desires to come back to the father. And we'll pick it up in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
It's a great picture of how a heavenly father treats a prodigal son or how a heavenly father treats the 11th hour workers. When we confess our sin as the prodigal son did and confess that we are not worthy as he did, that is very pleasing to the Lord. And even though we may believe that as we seek to come back, he's going to punish us, he's going to turn us away, he's going to disown us, But instead, what we see here, the picture that we have is even while we are a long way off, the Father sees us. He has compassion that he feels towards us. He runs to us. He embraces us, kisses us, and celebrates our return. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us that our God is a God who has redeemed us from an empty way of life. Has redeemed us from an empty way of life. And so if we feel like the prodigal son or the 11th hour worker, our return means to understand that this God who redeems is gracious. So we are to confess our sin. We are to turn back to him, understanding that we're not worthy, but allowing his grace to minister to us. What we must understand is that it is still the 11th hour. God is still seeking those who desperately see their need for him, and he is still gracious. Grace is very sweet to the 11th hour worker, but to others, those who see themselves as worthy, grace isn't sweet. It leaves a sour taste in the mouth, and this is what we see with this parable here. Back in Matthew 20, verses 10 through 12. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So what's their response to the master's generosity? They grumble because this group feels entitled. And why shouldn't they? They've worked in the heat of the day, all day long for 12 hours. And then there's others that come along and work for one hour. And so essentially they're saying, you have paid them equal, but they're not equal to us. It seems right, doesn't it? Who might feel like this group? Who might feel like the all-day laborers? In other words, who might feel like the VIPs of the kingdom? The Pharisees certainly would have because they thought they had it all together, and they looked down in scorn and contempt on the rest of the sinners. The Jewish people of that time could have also understood themselves as the all-day laborers in the sense that they were given the commandments of God, and they have sought to follow God's law for 2,000 years. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's welcoming Gentiles into the kingdom on equal footing as they are. That would not have seemed fair to them as well. But we also have the disciples. And even we see this through Jesus' question. We've left everything and followed you. What will we have? So I could envision the disciples, as time goes on, maybe even name-dropping once in a while. Think about this. The time of Pentecost comes around where thousands of people were entering into the kingdom of God by the preaching of the word. And some of these Christians would have been new young Christians. They might have said things like, wow, what would it have been like to have walked with Jesus? He must have been amazing. I could see Peter 
in a circle saying, yeah, Jesus and I, we camped together. We were tight. We fried fish together. We talked about the end of the world. I could see Peter, I could see the disciples potentially thinking of themselves as the all-day laborers, as the VIPs of the kingdom because of their status. But what about us? We also can fall into this category when we lose sight of the grace that has been given us and we start to look to our own merit. Just like the older brother, the story of the prodigal son continues with the older brother that he grumbled against the father because the father showed grace and mercy to his younger brother. And that wasn't fair. At times, we are more like the older brother that we grumble when God shows grace to those around us. It can be very difficult. When generosity and grace is bestowed on us, we love it. We say, thank you, Lord. That's great. But what happens when others around us receive great blessings? In fact, at times, it can be easier to grieve with a friend who has received a loss in their life than it can to celebrate with a friend that has a blessing. Because all of a sudden, we look and we say, but what about me? Why is he getting this and I'm not? Don't I deserve more? Don't I deserve better? And at that point, bitterness sneaks in. Because the sin of envy always leads to bitterness. It leads to bitterness with God because he has given people things that he's not giving me. But it also leads to bitterness with others because they've got what I want. The sin of envy can be very subtle but extremely dangerous and destructive. And we see this played itself out as this passage continues, or this chapter continues. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee come up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. These sons are James and John, a couple of the other disciples. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, am, that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom has been prepared by the Father. So we have this picture here of the mother of James and John. They're all three of them conspiring together for status. They're lobbying Jesus to be first. Jesus has been talking about the first will be last, but they're lobbying to be first. And Jesus even says, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? And they said, yes, we can. Not having a full understanding of what that cup meant. For Jesus, that was rich in Old Testament symbolism, of the understanding that he would drink the cup of wrath. It would be poured out on him. And for the disciples, they will end up drinking that cup. The cup of rejection. The cup of suffering. But they didn't understand. They just wanted to be first, and la- first in the kingdom, sitting right next to Jesus. But what's interesting is look at the response from the other disciples. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant. They were angry. Why were they angry? Well, if you're in your shoe, you could justify it saying, how could they ask such an arrogant thing of Jesus? But at the heart of it, the real reason behind their anger must have been 
that they know there's only one seat on either side of Jesus. And they all wanted that seat. They all wanted to be first. And what is Jesus' words to them? Verse 25. But Jesus called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is an upside-down kingdom where those who desire to be first shall be last. In this upside-down kingdom, being great means to serve. And this is so contrary to our culture. In our culture, what does it mean to be great? Obviously, it depends on the eyes that we view through. If we see through the eyes of the world, to be great means wealth and status, popularity, sex appeal, attractiveness, athleticism, you name it. How many of those are kingdom virtues? None. As opposed to the kingdom virtues that Jesus talked about. In the eyes of the Lord, greatness is all about the kingdom virtues that Jesus spoke of in this passage, but also in other places. For instance, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, where he says, and listen to these virtues, virtues, blessed are the poor in spirit because they see their need for God. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, they mourn their sin. And they mourn the sin of the culture around them. Blessed are those who are meek. The meek person is one who is humble and sees their need for God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the name of Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if we've entered in to this upside-down kingdom, what does this mean for us of how we love and serve those around us? What does it mean to truly serve our spouse, to love them? What does it mean to be gracious with our kids, with our coworkers, our friends? What does it mean for our enemies who might be our neighbors and our co-workers and others. When we understand that God is gracious and merciful with us, it frees us up to be gracious and merciful with those around us. And finally, let's look at the master's response to the grumblers. We see this in verses 13 through 16. But he replied, verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And as we, re- as we hear these words right here, we've got to remember the context. We have to remember Peter's statement. See, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will be there for us in the end? Jesus' response that the first will be last and the last will be first had to be extremely frustrating to Peter. And this leads us to the questions he asked in 15 and 16. Jesus, am I not allowed to 
to do what I choose? Am I not allowed to be generous to who I desire to be generous to? Peter right now would be frustrated, but a time is coming when he will desperately need to remember the words of this parable. Because look at the context. Where does Jesus go next? We see this in 17 through 19. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the 12 disciples aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Skip down to verse 28. Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And so Peter's asking, what's there going to be for us? And Peter's upset with the Lord's generosity. But that is exactly what Peter is going to need. Because before Jesus is crucified, Peter will deny him three times. I never knew him. I never knew him. I never knew him. And the words of this parable might be ringing in Peter's ears. Friend, do you begrudge me because I'm generous? Because Peter desperately needed that generosity. He desperately needed that grace. And we as well will desperately need the generosity and grace of our Lord. Because we will fail him. We'll continue to fail him. And what we need is not his fairness. What Peter needed is not fairness. What Peter needed was grace. And we understand grace more and more when we understand that we are the 11th hour workers. We get what we do not deserve, and we should be extremely thankful for that. Therefore, we should understand if we're the 11th hour workers, we are all on the same level with one another. We are all humble before the Lord who has been gracious to us. There is no place for pride. There is no place for contempt. There is no place for envy and jealousy. There is only place to worship God because of his amazing grace to us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, truly you are amazing. And this parable is very difficult to grasp. I confess For myself, for all of us, Lord, we desire so often to be first. And the reality is those who seek to be first will be last in the kingdom and the last first. So I pray that you would help us move in our hearts, that we would be humble, that we would understand your grace, so much so that we would understand that we get not what we deserve, but we get blessing upon blessing as we seek to live for you. And I pray that out of that, because of your grace, that that would be our motivation to truly live for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The congregational response as printed in your bulletins is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.